May peace be with you. If you stick around at the end, there's more information about our community and how to find us. And now, here's this week's Centering Scripture, followed by the sermon. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew, the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 11. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The rabbi needs them. Then they will let them go at once. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your sovereign is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the heir to the house of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Most High. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. I was going to put my sweater on. I'll just pretend to be Joe Maurer today. And by the way, I did not pay for this. I would never spend that much money. It was a gift. Just in case you were wondering. All right. Please pray with me. We come once again to this auspicious day. We hear the familiar words from these ancient scriptures. And we pray, as always, that they may become living word in our lives, that we might serve you with faithfulness and with joy. Amen. Over spring break, when our kids were small, we took a vacation to South Dakota. We saw all of the sights. We stayed at two different working cattle ranches. It was right at calving time, so that was exciting. And we saw all the sites, the Badlands, the Black Hills. We visited Custer State Park, Reptile Gardens, the Mammoth Site, the famous purple chair in the bordello at Deadwood. And of course, <laughs> we also visited Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. How many of you been to Mount Rushmore? Okay, I mean... If you're going to go, by the way, Google Maps is wrong. <laughs> we went before Google Maps, but, uh, and there's actually a sign that tells you that. Don't use Google Maps or you'll wind up in North Dakota. <laughs> so, 
At Mount Rushmore, after you know, staring up at the sculpture for a few minutes, we went down then into the visitor center to hear, uh, see the 15-minute informational film narrated by Tom Brokaw, a South Dakota native. The language of the film went something like this. The sculptor, Gutzum Borlug, Borglum, wanted to memorialize some of the greatest men in American history. The sculpture honors the greatest attributes of man and is itself a great achievement of mankind. <laughs> it was just an assault on the ears, Chris. <laughs> the whole enterprise is so masculine. Think about what took place. Using powerful, noisy explosives, men forced their will on nature to create on land sacred to Native Americans this mammoth sculpture of four Euro-American males famous for their leadership during wars. Mount Rushmore is quintessentially masculine. It's the ultimate example of marking one's territory. <laughs> For all that, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm not excited for humankind to forge any more faces on mountains, but if we do, I hope we can get a little more diversity. Yeah. Crazy Horse is a start, but other people of color, and of course, women would be nice if we're going to do that. So what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? Most Jews were hoping for a Mount Rushmore sort of Messiah, a George Washington on a war horse to lead the violent revolution, a Teddy Roosevelt charging up San Juan Hill, talk softly but carry a big stick. They wanted a leader in the mold of King David, a thousand years earlier, a military leader. During King David's time, it was the only time in Israel's history, David and Solomon, that the Israelites were the big deals instead of Mesopotamia or Egypt. They wanted a return to that kind of power. But instead of a Mount Rushmore Messiah, they got a Mount of Olives Messiah. They got a Messiah that did not charge up the mountain on a war horse, but rode down the mountain on a donkey, the symbol of a king coming in peace. He didn't carry a big stick. In fact, on the Mount of Olives, a few months later, when the temple guard came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out a sword. And what did Jesus say? Oh, for Pete's sake. <laughs> You always wondered where that phrase came from. <laughs> now you know. Oh, for Pete's sake, Peter, after all this time, you don't know what I'm about. Put your sword away, you nitwit. <laughs> it's not the kind of king he was. Jesus didn't carry a big stick. He allowed himself to be nailed to one. Holy Week is the church's annual reminder to say no to the culture's myth of redemptive violence. Where is power found 
true power. True power is not power over, but power from within. True power is found in the holy virtues, including generosity. Now, I love a well-written book with lilting language, dazzling descriptors, muscly metaphors. But what I remember from books are the stories, right? That's why Jesus told them. So the rest of the sermon is sprinkled with stories on the theme of generosity. I hope that one or more will move you, perhaps change you. Probably 20 years ago or so at a family gathering, I admired my brother-in-law's sweater. I said, that's a handsome sweater, Bob. He immediately took it off and gave it to me. It's yours. Wow. I like your car a lot, too. <laughs> Thought it was worth a shot. Every time I wore this sweater, which was a lot to my wife's consternation. She didn't like it nearly as much as I did. <laughs> I thought of my brother-in-law, Bob, and his generosity. When I, was a high school, when I was in high school, I asked a new girl out on a date. And when I showed up at her house for that first date, and I was always kind of nervous, and she, of course, introduced me to her parents, and father said, hmm, Bill Chadwick, are you Ed Chadwick's son? I said, yes, I am. He said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> he said, when I was about your age, my buddy and I thought it would be a really brilliant, fun idea to burn down one of your dad's haystacks. It was completely destroyed. And we got caught. So your dad sat us down. He didn't know us from Adam, but he said, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. Haystack was worth $70. You need to pay it back. You have jobs? Yeah, we had part-time jobs. Okay. Each of you $5 a week until you've paid back for the haystack. He said, so we did. Every week we showed up at your house and handed your dad each a $5 bill. And when the total was paid back, your dad handed us an envelope with all the money back. That didn't hurt with the dad of that girl. Right after my dad died, one of my high school classmates, somebody I didn't know very well, came up and said, Bill, did you ever know that 30 years ago your dad paid the down payment on my parents' first house? I didn't know that. Any of you know the name Tony Campolo? Some of you heard it at the comedy event, but... Tony Campolo was, a, he's retired now, I think he's still alive, was a professor of sociology at Northeastern University in Philadelphia. He and his wife, when they were probably around 30, decided that they were going to live on $18,000 a year. Now, this is a long time ago, probably like 80000 today. They lived in Philadelphia, pretty high cost of living. They had two kids. They said, we can make it on 80000 a year. And over the years, they lived on an inflation-adjusted $18,000 a year. 
and they gave away the rest. And Tony became a world-renowned speaker. Probably gave 200 speeches a year. Best-selling author of 20 books. I'm guessing for decades, his income was well into six figures. I'm thinking he probably, they probably did a reverse tithe, lived on 10% of their money and gave away 90%. But he said, it's all we need. The psychologist Eric Fromm wrote, the most widespread misunderstanding is that which assumes that giving is giving up something being deprived of, sacrificing. To the contrary, giving is the highest expression of potency. In the very act of giving, I experience my strength, my love, my power. This experience of heightened vitality fills me with joy. Giving is more joyous than receiving, not because it is a deprivation, but because in the act of giving lies the expression of my aliveness. Eric Fromm. Now, I understand that we come, each of us, from different places. I was so fortunate to grow up in a family that had enough money and not too much. It's allowed me to carry into life a deep-seated confidence that there will be enough. Psychologists call it coming from a scarcity or an abundance mentality. I'm very fortunate to be able to come from an abundance. And for some people, they have a lot more to overcome than I do to be generous. So let's recognize that. Of course, generosity isn't just about money. Be generous with our time. Sometimes that's harder for us, isn't it? But I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Y'all are involved with so many different volunteer activities. Another way to be generous is being environmentally conscious. Especially, uh, it, being environmentally conscious is an act of generosity, especially to those, the poorest among us, the oppressed among us, as we know, are so much more affected by environmental ills and by climate change than most of us are. Another story. Last weekend, Chris and I were in Charleston, South Carolina, where I officiated at a wedding of the daughter of a high school friend. By the way, it was hotter than heck there. <laughs> oh, poor me. <laughs> the wedding was just delayed a few minutes because the path between the parking lot out to the wedding gazebo, um, there was an alligator in, in the way. So it was a, it was a memorable wedding. Um, but we thought, if we're going to be in Charleston, we'd never been there before either, so we have to go to the world-famous seafood restaurant, Hyman's Seafood Restaurant. Any of you been there? Uh, it's a very interesting place. But our favorite thing about it was this. On the front window is a sign. Reads, please no panhandling in front of Hyman's Seafood. For those who have to go through the garbage at night for something to eat, please do not do it. You are human beings and deserve love and respect. 
please come inside and we will be happy to offer you a bite to eat to take with you. No questions asked. And we saw young men take advantage of that. I submit that one of the most significant ways in which humans are created in the image of God is that God created us to be givers, like God, generous givers. Which brings us to a vital point, and again, I'm preaching to the choir. Generosity is vital, but we want to go beyond noblesse oblige. Oh, let me help you, you poor thing. Beyond that, to doing justice, to get, go upstream to the root causes. Why are these people poor? Why are they uneducated? Why are they resorting to violence? To do justice is an act of generosity. Such a need is in our face again this week with gun violence an anti-trans conversation and legislation, even. Let me finish with one more story. It's about the disciple Thomas, he of doubting fame. <laughs> Tradition has it that Thomas traveled to, after the resurrection, traveled to Parthia and India to share the good news of Jesus. And in India, he attracted the attention of the king, who learned that he had been trained as a builder. And the king was planning a new uh, palace on the outskirts of town, so it could be bigger than the one that he had. And he engaged Thomas to be the chief architect and chief builder. And Thomas agreed on, on one condition. He said, you have to wait until I am completely finished with the, product, with the project before you come look at it. All right. So King Gundafor gave Thomas a great deal of gold and silver and set him out to create on this vacant area, the edge of town, a magnificent palace. And from time to time, the king would be impatient. He'd send word, how's it coming? And Thomas would say, it's really, it's a, it's you won't believe it. But I've run into a couple of snags, though. I need some more money. The king would send him more money. It's happened two or three times. Finally, Thomas sends word to the king. Your palace is complete. Come see it. So King Gundafor gathers all his courtiers and comes in a great procession, pomp and ceremony to see his new palace. And he comes to the site and it is an empty field. <clears throat> Gundafor is enraged. Thomas, you have stolen my money and made me a laughingstock among my people. Throw him in the dungeon. We will publicly execute him tomorrow. Thomas said, No, your majesty. 
I have done neither of those things. I did not steal your money. I used it to build hospitals and schools and houses for your people. And I did it in your name and the name of my God, Jesus. You are loved by your people, not a laughing stock. The king realized this was true. And for the rest of Thomas's life, the king helped spread the news of this generous God named Jesus.